Amen. You can go have a seat, Harvest. Uh, I just want to say, if I have trouble speaking this morning, it's not because I've had a cold all week. It's because it's Nate's fault for leading us in awesome worship this morning and uh, almost making me lose my voice in worship. What a, what a blessing that was uh, to worship our Lord this morning. Amen. Um, hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest as an associate pastor. And whether you are joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we're just so thankful that you've chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. It's really a blessing to have you with us, and and we want to know how we can best serve you and pray for you and love you. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me this morning in Titus chapter 2? We're going to be in Titus chapter 2 this morning as we uh, continue going verse by verse by verse through the book of Titus, uh, through our sermon series we're calling Build Your Church. Uh, that's our prayer. That's our, our heart cry. That's uh, what we're desiring God to do as he promised he would do when Jesus uh, said and promised that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so that's what we're, that's what we're praying as we're going through Titus this morning. Uh, and, and if you uh, don't have a Bible, I would still really encourage you and, and challenge you to uh, find a way to follow along with us. There's multiple ways you could do that. You could just uh, pull out a phone and Google Titus chapter 2 ESV and it'll pop right up for you. Or if you would prefer a paper uh, Bible, there's some on the table in the back, and we would love for you to just uh, take one of those and use it. And if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, just take that as our gift to you. We would love for you to have God's Word uh, for yourself. But Titus chapter 2 this morning, uh, and even if you're not quite there, I want to go ahead and read our passage for us this morning, and then we'll pray and get started. Uh, But if you're not there, don't worry. We'll come back to it, obviously. But here's what Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 says. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the worship that we've been privileged to give you this morning. You are the great I am. We plead with you to build your church. That's our heart cry this fall as we, as we want to see you glorified through the building of your church, Father. And so as we come to your word now, we trust that every single word of it is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit and is profitable for, our, for doctrine and for reproof and for our training in righteousness. And so we ask that you would, you would meet with us now in this time to challenge us, to encourage us to equip us, to make us look more like Jesus. Father, would the lost be saved and the saved be sanctified and the sanctified multiplied and sent out on mission. Father, build your church. That's our prayer this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm not really a NASCAR fan, but one thing that's always fascinated throughout my life has been NASCAR pit stops. See, it absolutely fascinates me that a team of just five men can change four tires, uh, carry those tires across, fill up a gas tank, and even clean a windshield all in a matter of about 12 seconds. 
And even so earlier this year, uh, the, the pit crew for Kyle Busch's number 18 team apparently set a new record for doing all of that work in 8.96 seconds. It's crazy. Like, don't blink or you'll miss it. See, part of why that fascinates me is because I'm not a car guy at all. Like, I'll admit that. I've said that before when I've been preaching. I do know how to change a tire, uh, but, but the reality is if I were supposed to do all of that work by myself, if I had to go out there and jack up my car right now and, and take off all four tires and change the tires, fill up the gas, clean the windshield, like between the YouTube tutorials I'd have to watch and the, the lunch and nap breaks that I'd have to take at some point in there, I'd probably come in at way closer to 8.96 hours than 8.96 seconds. Like, it's amazing. So watching a good pit crew do all of that work in a matter of seconds just absolutely amazes me. But aside from the, the, the mechanical knowledge and the pure talent and athletic ability that they have, there's a couple reasons that a NASCAR pit crew can do in a matter of seconds what it would take most of us regular people a matter of hours to do. See, first, NASCAR pit crews have one goal in mind, and they pursue that goal with an absolutely singular focus. They're not listening to podcasts while they work, like that's what I'd be doing. They're not, they're not checking their phones every few minutes to see what's going on on Facebook. No, they know that they have a goal to do, and if they're going to have any hopes of, of winning the race, they're going to have to stay focused on that goal of doing all that work. And second, on a NASCAR pit crew, everyone has a part to play. See, in NASCAR, everybody might know the driver's name, but he's not the only person on the team. Like the driver doesn't park the car and then get out and do all of the work himself. No, it's, it's a team effort. Everyone has a responsibility. If this is going to happen in a matter of seconds, all at the same time, everyone has a job to do. The driver's going to have to get the car exactly where it needs to go. The jack man's going to have to get up there and jack up the car. The tire carriers are going to have to carry the tires out. The tire changers are going to have to take the tires off, put the new tires on. The gas man's going to have to fill up the gas tank, all in under what probably is the amount of seconds that it, that it took me longer to say all of that than it would take them to do it. One article I read about this whole process of a pit stop this week said this. It said, every member of a pit crew is equally important to the overall success of the team. If you pay close attention to the pit action, you'll notice that the team moves with a calibrated swiftness that is forged from thousands and thousands of practice runs. The well-rehearsed symphony is a perfect synchronization of actions that keeps everyone moving nearly the entire time. Now that quote was intended to describe what an effective NASCAR pit crew uh, does and how they operate, but really if we were to shift a few words around, it would really be a good descriptor of what a healthy church looks like. Well, we could change that and say every member of the church is equally important to the overall success of the Great Commission. If you play, pay close attention to the church life, you'll notice that the Christians move with a calibrated swiftness that is forged from thousands and thousands of practice runs. The well-rehearsed symphony is a perfect synchronization of actions that keeps everyone moving nearly the entire time. See, just like a pit crew can't get dis- afford to get distracted from their goal of winning the race and still hope to be effective in-, in doing what they're supposed to do, the church can't afford to get distracted from the mission that King Jesus has given us, namely to fulfill the great commission of making healthy disciples of him. And just like everyone on a NASCAR team has a job to do, Every single follower of Jesus has a part to play in discipleship. And no one is more important than anyone else. And so this morning, as we look at Titus chapter 2, we're going to take a look at the, the part that each of us has to play. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our big idea this morning, our, our, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that will tie it all together for us, our big idea this morning is this. God has given everyone in his church a part to play in the building of his church. 
Again, God has given everyone in his church a part to play in the building of his church. And so, so you ask, well, what is that part, Andrew? What, what, what is it that we have to do? Well, I'll tell you, it's discipleship. See, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, no matter how many days or decades you've been walking with Jesus, you are called to discipleship. You have a part to play. You are an irreplaceable part of God's pit crew as he builds his church. And so, so let's jump into the text this morning. What does it mean to pursue my part? That's what we're calling the message this morning, pursuing my part. So what does it mean to pursue my part? Well, first, pursuing my part means pursuing a discipleship that is rooted in good doctrine. It means pursuing a discipleship that is rooted in good doctrine. If you have your Bible still open to Titus chapter <coughs> 2, look with me just at verse 1. Or again, Paul says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Before we go any further this morning, it's probably helpful if we actually just hit the pause button and actually define what discipleship is. Because see, discipleship is one of those church words that, that we throw around a lot because we know it's important. We know it's something that we probably should be doing, but it's really one of those big concepts that we kind of in our minds make out to be so big and scary that, that we talk ourselves into be like, you know, I, I think that's maybe just something the professionals should do. I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play a part in this. Or sometimes we might take a stab at it in, in, in good efforts and, and think that, that we're really accomplishing discipleship when really that's not what's happening at all. Because see, sometimes we can think that discipleship is just, just hanging out and maybe talking about the Bible and, and sure that's, that's part of discipleship. It's an extremely important part of discipleship. Like we, we never want discipleship to be detached from, from God's word. It should be anchored in and rooted in and circled around God's word. But if discipleship stops there, the risk is that all it will ever become is just a bunch of head knowledge. And that's not what discipleship is. Here's, here's all discipleship is. Discipleship is the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. It's the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. That's it. That's all discipleship is. It's, it's a knowledge that moves towards action and change. And we, we see that flowing right out of the Great Commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. When he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then here's where we tend to drop the ball teaching them what? To obey all that I have commanded you. And notice it doesn't just say teaching them followed by a period. It doesn't say teaching them all that I taught you. Again, this isn't about head knowledge. It says teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Because again, discipleship is the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. It's a life-changing encounter with the truth of who God is and what he's done and what he expects of us in return as a response for who he is and what he's done in our lives. But truth is the root of discipleship. And that's why here in verse one, before Paul goes any further in the passage, he just stops and says, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Like don't, don't mirror the, the nonsense that the enemies and the false teachers back in chapter one that we've looked at the past few weeks. Don't, don't mirror the nonsense that they're teaching and then the way that they're living. Don't, don't do that. Don't go there. Lay a strong foundation for the church by making sure that everything that you teach and everything that you do is solid, sound, and healthy doctrine. Make sure it matches what scripture says. The sound doctrine is the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus and the, the Holy Spirit-inspired Spirit writings of the apostles that have been 
preserved and passed on in order to guard and guide the church. And again, Paul says, don't stray from that. Don't wander away from that for a second, Titus. Make sure everything that you say and do as you disciple and teach others meets the standard of sound doctrine. Early last year when we moved back to Maryland, uh, our van failed the, the vehicle safety inspection that's required to, to, to register the vehicle. See, I'd grown up in Maryland, and I've always lived in Maryland, but I've never moved into Maryland, so I kind of forgot about the whole inspection thing. Uh, and, and when we took it, it wasn't up to standard. I took it to the garage for the safety inspection, and the mechanic came out. And before we even did the inspection, he kind of, kind of walked around the car and just took a look at it. And he said, look, before you even pay for this, I'll tell you right now, it's not going to pass, pass the inspection. See, the, the tread on your tires has to be at least two thirty seconds of an inch deep in order for it to pass. And, and you're going to need some new tires before it passes inspection. And, and my cheap self, who didn't want to buy new tires, is like, come on, you can't, you can't look at the tires and measure in your mind the 30 seconds of an inch. It doesn't work that way. You've got to actually measure it. You've got to compare it to something. And, if, and of course you do. See, if he was actually going to go through with the inspection, he'd have to pull out a, a tire tread gauge and and push it down into the tire tread and get the reading for what actually is, is the tread on the tires and then compare it to the measurement of the standard that's already been set. He can't just eyeball it and take it a guess. It's not about what he thinks in the moment or what feels right to him as he's deciding whether or not to pass a car. No, he has to get an accurate reading of the tires and then compare that reading to, the, to what the law says in order to make sure that the tires are in accordance with the standard of what is safe. Right here, Paul's telling Titus to keep his doctrine gauge ready, to get your doctrine gauge ready, and so that everything you teach, I need you to to use that doctrine gauge to make sure that it it is according with sound doctrine. Why? Because it's God that gets to set the standard. Not Paul, not Titus, not us. It's God who determines truth, and he, he gives us that sound doctrine for our growth, not just for our information. See, truth is the root of discipleship. And remember, discipleship is the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. Really, that that phrase there, sound doctrine, could even be translated as healthy doctrine, and that would give us a really clear picture of of what he's after here. So over the past couple of years, we've all, in our minds, become expert epidemiologists. We, We pretend at least to know all there is to know about the spread of viruses. We've spent so much time hearing about this and studying this and and the danger of viruses. And so really, when we think about sound doctrine, instead of just thinking about it in terms of of true or false or sound or unsound, we can really think about it in terms of healthy or unhealthy doctrine. See, unhealthy doctrine is to be avoided like a virus because over time it will shut down your spiritual immune system. It will bring your discipleship to a grinding halt. Like so many of us have been struggling with colds the past week. We we feel what that feels like, and and that's what sound or unhealthy doctrine will do. But healthy, sound doctrine will grow you and change you as you pursue godly living. Sound doctrine is not the end goal of discipleship, but it is what discipleship must be rooted in. So pursuing my part means pursuing a discipleship that is rooted in good doctrine, but that's not all it means, because number two this morning, Paul goes on, he also wants us to know that pursuing my part means pursuing a discipleship that, is, that results in godly living. That pursuing, that pursuing my part means pursuing a discipleship that results in godly living. <coughs> we'll see this in the rest of our verses this morning. And so see, if, if, if discipleship really is <coughs> the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ, 
Paul paints for us a clear picture of what that, that upward trajectory should look like in the lives of normal, everyday Christians as they pursue discipleship. This isn't like back in chapter one where he singles out the, the pastors and elders and, and just talks to them for a minute. This is for everyone because remember, God has given everyone a part to play in discipleship, in the building of his church. No matter who you are, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, this is for you. Well, it might look a little different depending on who you are. Everyone has a job to do and a growth point to pursue. And so as we walk through these, these next several verses, we're not going to try to zoom in on every single little detail or every adjective or characteristic that we see here. We're just going to try to take a snapshot of, of what Paul's getting at as he's painting this picture. We want, to, we want a snapshot to tuck away in our minds so that as, as we pursue our own discipleship, we know what the end result is. We know what the target is. We know what this should look like as we are pursuing it ourselves. So what is the result of pursuing discipleship? Well, first, the result is godly older men. It's godly older men. Look at verse 2. Paul says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Thank you. I don't think anyone really captures uh, in, our, in our culture, what, what our culture views as a, as a stereotypical older man better than the show uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. Like, we've probably all seen that show, and, and so we all know who Frank Barone is. And just in case you've never seen an episode of, of Everybody, Lo- uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, let me introduce you to Frank. Uh, see, Frank is the patriarch of the Barone family who is known for doing and saying whatever he wants, whenever he wants, no matter who is around, because he does not care who, who thinks what about him. He's just going to do what he wants to do. So to put it bluntly, Frank Barone is the exact opposite of what Paul has in mind here as he's describing what a godly older man looks like in the church. But the sad part is that all of us know older men like Frank Barone's who, who claim to be followers of Christ. And what's even more sad is that we think that that's normal and acceptable for a man who claims to be a follower of Jesus. But friends, that shouldn't be the case. So the longer a man or, or woman, for that matter, walks with Christ, the more they should look like Jesus. After walking with Jesus for decades, their hearts should be getting softer and softer, not harder and harder. And that's what, what Paul's getting at here. It's the upward trajectory in the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. See, right here in verse 2, Paul's painting a picture of what a godly older man looks like. A godly older man is the man who, who has the hard-earned biblical wisdom that is necessary to navigate whatever hard thing in life comes his way. He's the man who's got the dignity and self-control that allows him to actually respond in a kind, gentle, but firm manner instead of losing his cool and, respond, and, and just going off when something comes his way because he, he makes it his priority every single day to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's someone with, with convictions that are as solid as a rock, but, but a heart that's as soft as a pillow. See, a godly older man is someone that, that when he walks into a room, all the younger men in the room just look at him and say, that man right there, that is a godly man. That is a man who has been walking with Jesus for decades. And by God's grace, when I get to be his age, I want to be as gentle and loving with my wife and my kids and my grandkids as, as that man is. Because that is a man who's walked with Jesus for decades, and that's what I want to be like when I grow up. This man has a, a certain gravity to him, and when he speaks, others listen. That's what a godly older man is like. But what about the result of pursuing discipleship for older women? Well, the second result of pursuing discipleship 
is godly older women. And Paul sets pretty much the same expectation for older women in verse 3. You'll notice, though, that Paul does not use any numbers to define the term older women uh, because Paul is a smart man, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and and, and the Holy Spirit's not going to let him go there. But he does say in verse 3 that older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. The idea, the idea right here is that an older woman is to be, is to be the picture of godliness. And so often when we hear the, the word reverent, we think the word reverent just means like stuffy and quiet and kind of shy and off to yourself. And that's, that's not the case at all. The, the language here is really a picture of behavior that would be fitting in a temple. It's, it's living a holy life that reflects the character of the Lord. Not being a gossip or a busybody or drinking too much. What, what Paul's saying to the older men and the older women in the congregation the people that have walked with Jesus the longest, he's saying that, that, listen, your responsibility in discipleship is to model for others what it looks like to be further down the road of discipleship than the people around you. It's to show them how to live a godly life as a person who's faithfully walked with Jesus for decades. Not, to just to, not just to show them how to build something or to cook something, but to show them what a life looks like that has been changed by the grace of God over the course of decades of walking with him. It's not to say, here's how I think you can fix your problems. It's, it's, hey, I've been where you are. I remember what it was like. And I can promise you that Jesus is good in the, in the season of life that you're in. And, and I want to walk with you. And I want to help point your eyes to Jesus in the middle of all this. But what about the younger people? Well, the, the third result of pursuing discipleship is godly younger women. It's godly younger women. Paul moves on to show the, the results for younger women in verses 4 and 5. He says the older women are to be teaching the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now, I know there's a couple of things in there that might sound a little controversial and need a little explanation, so let's, let's stop and let's look at these things. Let's not just uh, get, get frustrated with maybe what we think God's Word is saying. Let's actually explain some of them. Well, what Paul's saying when he mentions loving their husbands and children isn't that they need to learn how to be in love with their husbands or have a a caring relationship with their children. No, that comes naturally. What Paul's getting at here is what everyone that's married and has kids already knows. That there will come a day when the romantic emotions of dating wear off and your husband leaves all of his clothes all over the bedroom floor and your kids, the days of parenting young kids gets long and frustrating and tiring and that's that the day's going to come. And Paul's saying when that day comes, the feelings of love aren't going to be enough to get you through. And you're going to need some, some godly older women to come alongside you and tell you, no, you're not going crazy. This is normal. This is to be expected. And then help you from their own experience see what love really looks like when, time get, when, when times get tough and, and you're struggling to hold it all together. When he says working at home, he's not saying that it's wrong for women to work outside the home or to pursue a career. That's not the case at all. What he's, what he's saying is that a, that a wife's heart for her husband, her children, and her home should rank higher than any selfish motives or ambitions. See, the, the problem that was actually going on in Crete, he's, he's addressing a very, a very real problem here. The problem in Crete was that some younger women were, were getting caught up in the world and they were saying, you know what, forget my husband, forget my kids, forget everything that, that is my responsibility in the home, and I'm just going to go do my own thing. And so Paul is saying, no, no, just hold on for a second. Let's hit the pause button on that kind of behavior. That's not what godly people do. That's not what we're going after here. 
And so quickly, let me just also say that that phrase being submissive to their own husbands in no way devalues women. Like we can never detach that statement from verses like Ephesians 5, 25, where husbands are commanded to love their wives and, and, and give as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not a license for husbands to be dictators. Guys, listen, men are to lead in the home, not lord in the home. But Paul includes this reminder to godly young women to, to, to tell you, listen, when you, when you feel like things are going crazy, if you commit to this, you're putting the beauty of the gospel on display in your own homes with your attitudes towards your husband and your children in your homes as it reflects godliness and it puts the gospel on display and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And so finally, what about the young men? We're going to be, absolutely be shocked by the result here, but the, but the result of pursuing discipleship in younger men then is godly younger men. Paul addresses Titus and the, the other younger men in verses 6 through 8 when he says this. Look back at Titus chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8 says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. We won't spend much time here because really uh, the, the heart here is very similar to what we've already looked at a few weeks ago back in chapter 1 verses 5 through 9 when Paul gave the qualifications for elders. So the point here is that younger men are to be men of character and integrity in the way that they, they operate in the world and in the workplace and in the marketplace and, and everywhere they go. It should be a, a life that glorifies God with, with how they're behaving in the world. But the main thing that I want us to zoom in on here is the word self-controlled. So if you'll notice, throughout the passage that we looked at this morning, that word self-controlled has shown up in every single category. And what that tells me is that we as fallen human beings tend to struggle with self-control. Like it was mentioned for, for older men in verse 2. It was implied in verse 3 for older women. In verse 5, it was for younger women. And now Paul mentions it again here for the younger men, because it's incredibly important for young men to pursue self-control if they're going to pursue discipleship and growth and godliness. See, it's the self-controlled young men who, who will avoid clinking the link that he knows he shouldn't clink in order to avoid watching the things he knows he shouldn't watch. It's the self-controlled young man who will pour himself into studying God's word and serving his wife and parenting his children in the way they ought to go. It's a self-controlled young man who will have the, the wisdom to manage his time well and, and the courage to actually go to war with sin in his life instead of just putting himself in this continuous cycle of trying to do better next time. In short, it's the self-controlled young man who will be the godly man instead of acting like the godly man, instead of being a pretender. And so having looked at all of those things in verses 2 through 8, no matter who you are this morning or where you find yourself in that, that scale of, of, of qualifications, I know what you're probably thinking right now. You're probably thinking, like, yeah, right. Like, you don't know how long I've, I've, I've fought and how long I've, I've pursued these things and how long I've warred with sin in my life. You don't, you don't know what it's like to face what I have to face. You don't, Andrew, you don't know what, what I was like in the car on the way to church this morning with my kids. Like, you don't, you don't get it. You're right. I don't know specifically, but I, but I do know a Savior who died to redeem you. 
And I know that through him, if you are in Christ this morning, 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that you have been given already everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Everything that is necessary for Titus chapter 2 living, you've already been giving it. In other words, if you are in Christ, it is not only possible to become this type of person described in Titus chapter 2, but you have both been called and equipped to become this type of person. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to invite you into that as well. See, 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and live the perfect life that you and I could never live and then die the death that we deserve as the penalty for the sins that we've committed. And three days later, he, he rose from the dead, forever defeating sin and death, so that if you would just repent or turn from your sins and place your faith in him alone for, in what he's done on the cross for you, you would be saved. And if you've never done that this morning, I would plead with you to do it today I, and, and invite you to join us as we pursue discipleship together this lifelong process of becoming fully formed followers of Christ. Run to Jesus and be saved. But for all of us who are followers of Jesus, again, we have been called and equipped to pursue a discipleship that results in godly living. We've been called and equipped to become Titus chapter two people. But, but not only have we been called and equipped, if you want some good news this morning, short of the gospel itself that I just told you, the best news that I have to give you this morning is that you are also being empowered right now as you pursue godliness to become a Titus chapter two person. You are being empowered by God himself. You are called, equipped, and empowered. See, so often when we talk about pursuing godliness, we, we try to get there by telling ourselves to, to do more, try harder, do better next time, as if it all depends on us. Like we want to we whip ourselves into shape and then guess what? We're, we're somehow shocked when we fail and we just then live in, in guilt and, and, and struggling and, and how are we ever going to do this? Friends, when we do that, we are suffering from what's called gospel amnesia. In other words, we're forgetting the gospel itself. When we do that, we're, we're forgetting who it is that has saved us and who it is that is holding us secure and who it is that has promised <coughs> to sanctify us the entire way. We're forgetting the gospel. And we've chosen to make ourselves responsible for all of it. And if that's you this morning, if that's what you're doing, the Apostle Paul has some pretty blunt words for you in Galatians 3, 3, where he says, are you so foolish? Like having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Like, did you save yourself? If you didn't save yourself, how in the world do you think that you're going to pursue godliness and experience victory over sin in your life. No, it's all of grace. <clears throat> Here's what Hebrews 6.1 says. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. In other words, you can't stay a baby Christian forever. You're being called to grow in maturity and pursuing a discipleship, a discipleship that is both rooted in and results in godly living. And the good news here is that if you look at Hebrews 6.1, so if you look at Hebrews 6.1, you'll know that you don't have to do this on your own. Hebrews 6.1 can, can tell us, it can, can make us think that if, if we're going to really go on to maturity, we're going to have to crack the whip on ourselves and, and do some things. But that's not the case here. Again, Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 
But if you read it in the original Greek, you'll see that it's actually passive. Now, if you're not a grammar nerd like me, what, what that actually means is that, that you're not the one doing the action here. It's the action that's being done to you. And so what that means in the context of Hebrews 6.1 is that you're the one that's being carried on to maturity. You're not responsible for all this. The, this verb here, like a lot of the verbs in Hebrews, is a nautical picture. It's a sailing illustration to basically say that if you are in Christ, Growth happens when you lift your anchors to be ready to leave the elementary immaturity of the Christian faith, and then you hoist your sails so that the the Holy Spirit himself can can be the wind in your sails to carry you on to godliness. And that's good news. The Holy Spirit will be the one that will carry you on to godliness, but here's the thing. You've got to raise your sails. You've got to hoist your sails. The progress in the Christian life isn't your responsibility, but the positioning of your sails is. And if you're going to grow in godliness, you've got to hoist your sails. You can't just sit by and and hope it happens. Nobody can do it for you. You've got to hoist your sails so that, that God can do his work in your life. And so then the question then is, well, how do we hoist our sails for growth and godliness? How do we do that? Well, here's five ways to hoist our sails this morning. First, practice the spiritual disciplines. So spiritual disciplines are what you do to spend time with the Lord. They're, they're, they're daily Bible reading, they're prayer, they're fasting, they're journaling, they're, they're serving alongside other Christians, they're, they're spending time alone with Christ in, in silence and solitude. And so are you hoisting your sails by doing those things? Let me just ask you bluntly this morning, how can you hope to become like somebody that you don't talk to regularly? That's prayer. How can you follow someone that you never hear from? That's reading your Bible. How can you you ever know what someone's truly like if you don't take the time to spend time with them? If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to spend time with him by practicing the spiritual disciplines. So hoist your sails. Second, commit to a local church. The local church is not just an option of what to do with your time on the weekends if nothing else comes up. It's the commanded gathering of God's people. It's a family gathering that we're, we're called to pour ourselves into in every way, but, but so many of us have, have made church attendance and participation and membership uh, just an optional add-on to already busy lives, and then we wonder why we have very little family resemblance to God's people. If you're listening online, we're, again, we're glad that you're with us this morning. We, we love that you're tuning in, but I just want to lovingly challenge you. If you're listening online, uh, short of, uh, of, a, of a very legitimate, legitimate medical reason to not be actively engaged in a local church, church can't happen on your couch through a TV screen. I want to encourage you to, to go and plug into a church where you are or come here, but hoist your sails. And third, join a small group. Look, I can't argue from Scripture that the exact procedures that we do in small groups here at, at Harvest Annapolis are the exact and only way to do it. Like, I can't, I can't argue from Scripture for a, for a structure of, of 20 minutes of hanging out and 45 minutes of, discuss, of discussing the sermon and in 45 minutes of accountability. But I do believe with all my heart that in our context, the best thing that you can do to, to hoist your sails and pursue your own discipleship is to join a small group. See, small groups are where you can get in the room and build relationships with people that are further down the road of their walks with Christ than you are and with people that are not as far down their their roads and walk with Christ as you are. And then you can grow together like we see in Titus chapter 2 as you pursue discipleship together. 
So if you're not in a small group, come, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Dan. Let's, let's get you connected. Let's get you in an environment where Titus chapter 2 can happen. But hoist your sails. Fourth, study and attend a class. Like I said earlier, well, well discipleship is more than just learning. It's, it's certainly not less than learning. And that means you're going to have to do some, some of the work. You have to dig in if you really want to grow. And you can do that by reading good books. In our day, we have an embarrassment of, of riches, of good resources that will help grow you in your walk with Christ. And, and believe me, if you really want some books, come to me. I'll assign some reading. We'll have, an, we'll have an awesome conversation about books. But we also have other ways that you can study. You can attend a class. Right now, we have two classes that are either going on or about to be going on. So, uh, so you can take advantage of those. We have the Got Questions class that's happening on Sunday mornings at 8.15 over here in the Fellowship Hall. Anyone's welcome to come join that. Come be a part of that. Or if you're a, if you're, if you're a woman here at Harvest, we would love to invite you to, again, to go to that, the women's class. It's going to be start, starting next Sunday after church at 12.30. These are great opportunities to hoist your sails. Just to be clear, though, these reading good books and attending classes aren't, aren't substitutes for the spiritual disciplines or for joining a church or joining a small group. They're supplements. They're extra things you can do to hoist your sails to grow in godliness. And fifth, be discipled and disciple others. This is really the thrust of what we see happening in the relationships between believers in Titus chapter 2. It's people being discipled and then discipling others outside of a formal class or program, but still within the context of the relationships in the local church. It doesn't have to happen at a particular time or a particular place with a particular frequency, but it does require intentionality. And just like Pastor Dan said in his weekly email this week, everyone should always have someone that's discipling them and someone that they're discipling in the Christian life. And remember, all discipleship is, is the lifelong process of becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. And so that means that if you're going to be discipled, all that means is finding someone that's going to push you and challenge you and encourage you as you walk and pursue becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. And if you're going to disciple someone else, all that means is that you've got to find someone to challenge and push and encourage and walk with as they pursue becoming a fully formed follower of Christ. And the question is, well, how do I, how do I get that going on? How do I start that? And here's all you have to do, really. If you're a younger person looking for someone to disciple you and to mentor you, pick out somebody in this room that you admire for where they are in their walk with Christ, that you see God working in them and growing them in godliness and and seeing the effect that that God has had on their marriage and their parenting, and go to that person. Just have a conversation and say, I I see how God's worked in your life. And it's awesome. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not there yet, but I've got some questions for you. And so, are you free for coffee next Thursday? Because I, I just I want to talk about what God's done in your life to bring you there. Or if you're an older person looking for someone to disciple, go to someone who's not as far along with you, someone that you can look at and remember what it was like, and then just go to them. And, and you don't have to be pushy, but just say, hey, I, I remember what it was like. I just want to make myself available to you. I'd love to have you over for dinner and, and get to know you. And, and just how can I pray for you? And then just go on from there. That'll start a relationship that everyone will benefit from as you grow in multiple directions. So hoist your sails. All that to say, friends, you can do this. We can do this. You can grow in godliness. You can become a Titus chapter 2 person because you have been called, equipped, and empowered by God himself to pursue both your own discipleship and the discipleship of people around you. 
And all you have to do is lift your anchor, be intentional about leaving the immaturity of the Christian life and hoist your sails and say, God, I want you to fill my sails and carry me on to godliness as as I keep my sails hoisted and keep going. And so here's the thing. I don't know a whole lot about sailing, but one thing I do know is that the more sails a sailboat hoists, the more wind it'll catch, the faster it'll grow and the more distance it'll cover. And the same is true of the Christian life. The more sails that you hoist, and we just gave you a list of five of them, and believe me, there's plenty more that we could, we could talk about of ways to hoist your sails. But the more sails that you hoist, the more wind you'll catch, the faster you'll grow, and the more ground that you'll cover for the kingdom of God. Friend God friends, God wants this for you. He's He's called you to pursue a discipleship that is both rooted in good doctrine and results in godly living. He's saved you. He's called you. He's equipped you. And he's empowering you right now. So pursue your part. Lift your anchors. Hoist your sails. And follow God. Watch God as he uses you to build his church. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you so much for your grace Father, thank you for the context of the church where you've provided for us people to grow us in godliness. Father, thank, thank you for the, the goodness of, of your word that shows us that uh, this is not all on us, that you will walk with us, that you will grow us as we pursue discipleship, Father. And so now I, as we come to the end of our services, we're about to worship you one more time. We just, just want to ask you for help. Father, would you give us the uh, the intentionality and the courage to, uh, to lift our anchors and to say, I'm not going to stay the way things are. I'm not going uh, to persist in the shallow end of the, of the Christian swimming pool. I'm going to lift my anchor and I'm going to go on and I want to hoist my sails and I want you to carry me to godliness. Father, as you build your church, it is our heart's desire that we would see a church that is filled with godly older men, and women and godly younger men and women that are set on pursuing you above all else and walking with you and and multiplying themselves and fulfilling the great commission, Father. But we can't do that on our own. So help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.